If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator. If you are a marketing executive who wants to deliver bottom line impact by identifying and connecting with revenue generating customers, then this is the show for you. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe, CEO of Ambition Data. Each week, I bring you the leaders behind the customer-centric revolution who share their expert advice. Are you ready to accelerate? Then let's go. Welcome everyone. Today's show is about implementing a CLV strategy, which is customer lifetime value, of course. Sounds simple, but it's actually quite complicated. And to help me discuss this topic is Jordan Elkind. Jordan is the head of product at Castora, a predictive customer analytics platform that sits on top of customer data to make insights more accessible for marketers. Now, if you follow the show and you are familiar with the things I talk about, in general, I almost never invite software or product folks onto the show. So it is uh, incredibly exciting to have Jordan here, and, and I'm very happy that he is able to be here because the the things that we're going to be talking about today are incredibly valuable, incredibly valuable for people who are trying to build customer equity. Jordan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Allison. It's great to be here. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you kind of drew the path from wherever you started into CLV strategy? Absolutely. Um, I have a rather nonlinear background. Uh, my first job out of college, actually, um, I was working for a performing arts organization doing right. uh, marketing. And yeah, uh, I've come a, quite a long distance, um, but uh, doing uh, marketing and fundraising strategy. Um, and I like to think of this as kind of my first exposure to database marketing, uh-huh. um, because some of the principles that would later come to haunt me or keep me up at night <laughs> related to customer equity. You know, the notion of customer heterogeneity and, and lifetime value were there right from the beginning when you're trying to figure out which supporters or, or donors to reach out to um, to mm-hmm. help keep the organization afloat and how to get the maximum return on a direct mail piece when your budget is like uh, 99 cents. Um, <laughs> it was it was a really exciting um, and, and volatile time for the organization. And eventually I went to business school uh, to develop a more robust foundation in, in some of this data-driven marketing. And that was where I crossed paths with Pete Fader, a name that I assume mm-hmm. is familiar to regular listeners of the, the podcast, really the um, luminary of customer lifetime value modeling. Um, and he got me really excited about the uh, potential for businesses to UCLV to organize around the principle of customer lifetime value and use that for competitive differentiation. Um, after business school, I um, made a, a misstep, which is that I thought that I would find that good uh, CLV vibe uh, working in consumer finance. I um, did predictive modeling for city cards 
the credit card division of, of Citigroup, uh-huh. uh, which was very, very uh, quantitative and, and very much involved in customer lifetime value, but also rather soulless. Um, <laughs> and a lot of the joy of marketing decision making and, and discovery, I just um, felt like I, I didn't uh, I didn't connect with the, at that organization. And that was when I um, was approached by Kasora, which was a fledgling company at that point that um, was working to bring some of uh, Professor Fader's research on uh, customer lifetime value modeling into the mainstream of, of marketing. And at the time, they were a very young company, and um, they had these pesky people who kept writing them checks every month, and, and they needed somebody to, to work with them. So I actually joined to lead our um, client success team. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it was my responsibility in the early days to you know, kind of span the gap between the problems and challenges that our customers were describing and what our software was able to do, but really to kind of internalize the language of, of retail marketing, understand the practical applications of CLV in the real world, and just as importantly, the constraints or obstacles that get in the way of uh, applying them at scale to, mm-hmm. to run the business. Mm-hmm. And over time, as we began maturing as a software company, we built up all kinds of great processes around account management and success. But the the one um, passion that really got me out of bed in the morning was um, bringing those insights about real life use cases and real life challenges to our product design. Like how do we architect a software that actually makes it possible for massive global matrix organizations to align around high value uh, customers? Um, it's, it's a really tough problem. And uh, I was actually given the, the opportunity uh, by the executive team at Kasora to um, create a, a new organization, the product management team. Um, and our team is responsible for guiding the uh, vision and strategy and the roadmap uh, of our software. And so that's what I've been doing for the past three and a half years. It's, it's definitely a lot that you've accomplished in that time period. I, I love how you flag that there are certain jobs that might be quantitatively intensive, but don't really seem to connect to the customer, even though it might be called customer modeling or CLV modeling. And that's one of the things I really love about the way a lot of retailers are using or or starting to use CLV strategies is they're starting to connect to customers. Can you tell us a little bit more about you know, maybe that's what you see too, but you know, why should people care about the CLV strategy? I mean, there's customer experience strategy, there's MarTech strategies, there's, you know, 50 other types of strategies out there. Why CLV? I hate to lead off on a negative note, but um, being immersed in the retail world as we are, we hear a lot about the the retail apocalypse. <laughs> Um, not sure if that's a phrase that <laughs> has been foisted on your, your listeners before, but it's uh, the idea, right or wrong, the ground is shifting underneath our feet in retail. And the world we live in today is very different than the one 10 years ago. You know, customer engagement patterns are changing. Customers now, you know, if you look at the path to purchase, there's engagement across more touch points, devices, and, and channels than ever before. Customers have uh, essentially a limitless choice thanks to Amazon and ultimate price transparency. And, and customer attitudes and expectations about how a brand treats them and engages with them are, are changing, right? That maintaining a transactional relationship with your customers is no longer enough to, to drive long-term loyalty. Uh, the reason that we hear this called the retail apocalypse is that there are 
winners and unfortunately very well publicized losers, well-known global brands that have had to shutter their doors or declare bankruptcy because they can't adapt quickly enough to the realities of, of the new age. Now, why do I think CLV is important? Well, we've actually spent a lot of time looking at the golden age of retail that's kind of buried under the headline of the retail apocalypse. Like there are companies that are killing it, that are posting regular growth numbers and growth numbers that you wouldn't believe. And these are retailers that we're all familiar with, right? Zara, Nike, Amazon. Um, But the companies that have managed to buck the trend or um, adapt to it in creative ways. And when we look at the the common thread that, that connects all of their growth strategies, what we we see is one that is powered by insights about customer lifetime value, specifically a fanatical, like zealous focus on who the best customers are and organizing the entire company around uh, catering to them, delivering value to them. And I don't mean just, you know, marketing to your high value customers through uh a direct mail catalog, I and mean, everything from understanding what products to build, what marketing channels, and how to architect your supply chain, where to construct store locations. The companies that are really pulling apart from the pack are the ones that realize the only sustainable way to win against Amazon <laughs> is to know your customers better and build a sustainable machine for growing customer equity. That's Castor's kind of mission statement or elevator pitch for, <laughs> for why we care so very much about CLV. And, and I think that's exactly where we're aligned. I oftentimes don't hear marketers talk or even resonate with the idea of customer equity. But when you have uh, venture-backed companies or you have companies that have heavy investors, they all understand the idea of equity because it basically means how much am I, how much value am I generating, particularly when we're talking about CLV, how much future value is locked up in that customer base. And I, I think you've hit on something really interesting here about the golden age that might be buried underneath the retail apocalypse, where it's really driven by perhaps tribes or perhaps um, the customers who are giving you the signals that they really love your brand, they really love your company, and they want you to do more for them. I sometimes say it's it's like being of service to the customer. Mm. As opposed to product pushing, you're looking for ways to ingratiate yourselves into your customers' lives. Uh, It's a great way of putting it. Now, what I thought was interesting that you mentioned, too, with Castora's focus is we're not just talking about marketing. And and we we are going to focus mostly on marketing here, but you also alluded to the fact that CLV is really um, broadly applicable outside of marketing. Do you see marketers becoming more influential because they can uh, influence or because their knowledge of the customer becomes so powerful? Oh, absolutely. And here I'll give a little tip of the hat to one of our investors, Foundation Capital, which is invested a lot of research time and energy into publicizing what they call the age of the CMO. And their thesis, right, is that if you were to track the evolution of corporate culture over the ages, you know, back in the the 80s, right, it was the the age of the CFO, financial mergers and acquisitions, financial wheeling, dealing, that was what drove company value. Mm -hmm. And in the 90s, it was the age of the COO, right? It was all about operational efficiency. But we we live in, in a time where there's just unprecedented access to customer data. And the marketing team is is right at the forefront of that. And the marketing teams that 
are, are doing things right are actually able to connect the dots across all of the, the ways that their customers are engaging with them to create incredibly rich profiles of, of who their customers are. The ability to understand what makes your best customers tick and over deliver to them, that is going to be the difference between life and death for many of the retailers that we work with today. And the marketing team is uniquely poised to, to help lead that revolution. So I mean, we've seen many examples of the marketing team driving strategic decisions that extend far beyond you know, decisions on ad placements or creative and fundamentally influence you know, merchandising, supply chain, and, and so forth. Oh, I love that. It, it, that's exactly what we like to see, too. Let's talk about some of those examples. So how do you see, uh, or, or maybe you can give us an example of a, a company that started off with more traditional thinking and how they changed to more modern marketing, customer-centric, CLV-driven thinking? For sure. It's, it's funny to characterize this as traditional going to modern, but one of the first companies that I had the pleasure of working with when I joined Casoro was Bonobos, mm-hmm. the um, clothing e-commerce concept that has been just wildly successful. And in a way, when we started working with them, they were traditional insofar as they were following the playbook for like an e-commerce startup, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, meaning that they didn't invest um, very much in traditional marketing or distribution channels, a traditional marketing channel being like direct mail, a distribution channel being like brick and mortar, right? At the time they were pure play e-commerce, uh, they were heavily reliant on word of mouth, organic search and, and so forth to, to source their customer base. Now, what was really interesting um, with Bonobos is that at a certain point, they really started taking off and achieving hockey stick growth. And then it began to stagnate a little bit. And it was tough for them to keep acquiring customers, much less high value customers, at the same rate that they, they had previously. And so they started looking outside the box for potential ways to grow their business. Now, a big part of that, of course, was they had this uh, amazing customer base. How could they further engage their best customers to drive repeat purchases? But they knew that they needed like a killer new acquisition vehicle, something that would increase awareness and bring really high value customers in the door. And so after batting around some wacky ideas for a while, they actually came up with like the craziest idea of all, which was imagine a pure play e-commerce retailer, right? Totally disencumbered from all of the burdens of running real estate, actually opening a physical store, much less in New York, (laughs) the most expensive (laughs) rent in the country. And this was just an absolutely wild gamble for them. But their hypothesis was if customers, especially their target segment, you know, who are men who may not have an extensive interest or familiarity with e-commerce fashion previously, if there were some kind of physical showcase for them, to uh, try products on, not even to buy them because these stores don't sell any products, but essentially a physical store window and a place to feel comfortable that it would deepen their engagement with the brand over time. Now, I can't overemphasize enough that in order for this crazy gamble to work, the lifetime value customers acquired through this channel would have to be like an order of magnitude higher than, than their regular customers. Do you mean an order of magnitude as in 10x or 5x or? I'd, perhaps 4 or 5x when you factored in the, so I don't know, half a, an order of magnitude higher, but very, very significantly higher than their traditional e-commerce customer, you know, because of the huge investment that they were making in the physical retail location. And so they kind of, uh, you know, on the edge of their seat began rolling out this concept in New York 
And the results were astonishing. And we had the pleasure of, of working with them at the time. So we were like watching the data roll in day by day, looking at how the Casora predictions were reading for that segment of customers, tracking the actual repeat rate of cohorts that had been acquired through that channel. And the, the lifetime value of the customers uh, who had had an initial touch point prior to their first purchase with the brand in one of their guide shop locations was it, it easily soared beyond that kind of break even mark. It, it was very, very significantly higher than their pure play e-commerce customers. So part of it was self-selection. Perhaps these are older, more thick walleted gentlemen who wouldn't have gravitated to an e-commerce shop, but saw something on the street. But I think they touched on something um, really powerful when they said, like, there is something experiential about the engagement that you have when you walk into a guide shop. You get to know the brand in a way that you don't just over, you know, e-commerce transaction. And that leads to this fanatical brand love that just keeps those customers coming back time and time again. Anyway, if this were just an isolated incident of like one gimmicky pop-up shop, I wouldn't be telling this story, but that actually became a major engine of growth for them over the ensuing years to the point where they expanded their guide shop strategy to a number of locations through, throughout the U.S. And I don't know how many they're at now, maybe eight or, or 10, um, but what gave them the confidence to pursue an aggressive you know, real estate growth expansion strategy really was uh, understanding how this formational customer experience early in the in the life cycle led to greater customer equity long term. I, I love that thinking because oftentimes we hear all of this noise about we're going to create a wonderful customer experience. And every time I hear a retailer talk about that, when the customer is an aggregate, uh, as if every type of customer would like the same type of retail experience, it drives me crazy because there's no value behind it. There's no strategy behind it. But what you've laid out here was a very specific strategy. They they knew who, not just who they wanted to attract in the guide shops, but they had a really measurable hypothesis behind it. They knew what that return value needed to be. And it wasn't just, you know, X person is going to make, um, you know, future dollar purchases of Y. It was our high value customers look like this. And this is what we think they want. Mm. So it was really driven by the thinking or by the perhaps by the characterization of who those high value customers were as well as the place they are operating in the life cycle that's what's driving the experience am i getting that right yeah absolutely and you know i could talk all day about amazing turnaround stories that we've seen in, in the retail world but what i find equally inspiring is that in some cases, the leadership team doesn't necessarily know what they're looking for ahead of time. They just know that following the CLV trail will help give them like, breakthrough insights. And an example of a retailer that I think exemplifies that CLV first mindset is fast fashion plus size e-commerce superstar called Eloquate. Mm -hmm. Eloquate is uh, just an amazing brand that like Bonobos has achieved fanatical levels of brand love and, and a very loyal following. And the leadership team, so CEO Mariah Chase, VP of Marketing, Kelly Goldstein, these would definitely go in like the CLV All-Stars Hall of Fame. They're people who uh, listen to the voice of the customer, not figuratively, but literally. They spend a lot of time out there talking to their best customers, understanding what makes them tick and looking for ways to deliver value to more parts of their life really becoming like a lifestyle brand, not just a clothing brand. There are two specific examples that come to mind for Eloquate um, for me. 
just a, as an example of this type of thinking. The first was, and Kelly uh, told this story last year at Kasora's Karma Conference. I'll say a word about that a little bit later. But uh, one of the, the first things that Kelly did when she became the VP of marketing was uh, begin to look for ways to systematically rescue high value customers who are downshifting, like slipping away, showing signs of, of fading off of their typical patterns. Because she knew that the average like high lifetime value customer for Eloquy was worth many times uh, you know, a more average customer off the street. And that's great, right? It's it's highly advisable in in my view for every retailer to have some sort of churn prevention or win back program in place. But what she and the team did went well beyond just a we miss you email. They actually got on the phone and called their best customers who were beginning to show signs of fading away. Uh, and they asked them, hey, what's up? Three weeks ago when we predicted your lifetime value, you were worth $1,000. Now you're only worth 100 What? Uh, tell us what's going on and, and what's changing. And the insights that they were able to glean from those conversations were like jaw-droppingly useful. They heard about the things that people liked, the content marketing, the, the branding. And they heard about things that they we're not so hot on specifically for a, a plus size um, fast fashion retailer fit is everything. It's so important. And they were missing the mark on, on the fit of a lot of their garments that their highest value customers gravitated towards. And it was leading to a really subpar customer experience. And so like mobilized into action, Kelly and, and the executive team went right back to the drawing board, like looped their design team into these conversations, got new fit models, re-engineered some of their most important garments, like the basics of their, their merchandise assortment from top to bottom in order to improve the fit and brought those right back on the market. And they saw an incredible uptake in the engagement of their high value customers as a result when they were able to really tailor the product to meet the needs of their most valuable segment. The other funny story, and I think Mariah, the CEO, told this at maybe the previous Karma was they fanatically monitor the health of their their high value customers, right? The customer equity, they're a very, very data-driven company. Customer equity they view as the lifeblood of their business. And they saw an interesting anomaly, which was that the rate of merchandise returns was spiking in their highest value customer subset. And because they're a curious bunch and default to action, they like picked up the phone and immediately started calling customers. And their concern was what I just described, like, man, we have some kind of fit flaw or defect in our garment. And what they learned astonished them, which was on the contrary, it, there was no defect or flaw in the garments. In fact, a, a curious thing was that the types of garments that were getting returned very frequently tended to be dresses and specifically white dresses. <laughs> What they discovered talking to their highest value customers who were returning all this stuff was that they absolutely loved Eloquy and they were having trouble finding legitimate wedding dresses that were flattering and fashionable for plus size bodies. And so they were actually buying Eloquy like cocktail dresses in white to wear to their wedding. And the reason they were returning so much was, you know, it's your wedding. You buy 10 and you choose the one that works best and you return the other nine. This was an example of another like astonishing conceptual breakthrough for them because it got them thinking about, wow, is there this whole new area of our best customer's life that we're not catering to for his big day? And um, what if we were to create a bridal assortment or partner up with a, another vendor to offer kind of a, a bridal line? In any case, I, I love talking about Eloquity because they're a great team, but those to me are some of the great examples of how taking customer lifetime value seriously Viewing your best customers as the single most important investment that you have can yield incredible insights to power product design, 
distribution channel service delivery and, and much more. There's, there's so much richness in that story. I want to call a couple things out. Um, what you just said a second ago was about empowering product design. And I think that is indeed what happens when, um, as you said, a company becomes fanatical about really understanding what drives their high value customers. One of the first applications is to apply that knowledge into other aspects of the company, product being an immediate place to turn, especially if there's a product uh, piece that's missing. So I, I love that angle. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit more, if you know more on the story here, about the way that they call their customers. I oftentimes see this gap, um, particularly with companies who are on their way to becoming data-driven. They, you know, they have a hard time getting survey off the ground. And then maybe when they finally get survey off the ground, they don't connect it to customer lifetime value. But in general, there's a giant disconnect between marketers sending information and the actual receivers of that information giving them feedback. But what Eloquid did here was they tied that loop together. How did they do that? How did they actually just you know get people behind that activity and, and break that bubble? Well, I think there's certainly the, the tactical question of how you reach customers, like individual customers at scale. And I'll address that in just a second. But I think actually Eloquy's secret weapon, I wish were more common in the more universal in the resellers that we work with, is that they have leadership by example. Their CEO um, is literally on the phone. She gives herself a, a quota of individual customer calls. Her work week is not complete unless she has talked to 50 individual customers from their customer base. And that fanatical culture of engaging with actual real people to understand what makes them tick and, and get their unvarnished feedback. You know, a lot of companies pay lip service to voice of the customer, but it's hard to imagine a more um, concrete demonstration of taking the voice of the customer seriously than the CEO picking up the phone and calling people. And that culture is permeated to all of her direct reports and really throughout the, the whole organization. Um, so I, I think probably the only part of it that's real magic is having the, the leadership team actually lead by example. Now, when it comes to, is it really scalable for a multi-billion dollar brand to call individual customers? Uh, we've seen different approaches uh, across different companies. Some brands will engage the, the help of qualitative research firms to help in, in conduct customer interviews. Some of them will, will run surveys. Some of them will have a panel um, in the wings ready to offer feedback on, on new products and stuff like that. I, I don't have a strong... Um, I, I think all of those approaches, by the way, have some sort of response bias. Like the people who feel the most strongly, either positive or negatively, are the, the voices that tend to get heard. The one word of caution or guidance that I would have for teams trying to understand how to actually absorb the voice of the customer better is to um, start with some hypothesis, something that you want to learn. In the case of the Eloquy team, they're fanatically focused on customer lifetime value. And I would go so far as to say that for most brands, um, starting with customer lifetime value is actually a great place to, to begin the journey, right? Rather than simply randomly contacting customers, all customers to understand yes. their response to a new product, their feedback on your mobile app, start with a really targeted subset of the customers who matter, like the people who are predicted to drive the most value for your business in the future and prioritize getting feedback from, from those customers. That I mean, sounds perhaps simplistic, but uh, quite often 
we see qualitative research methods that try to boil the ocean or pick up on every customer perspective from throughout the, the customer base, when in reality, I think we learn the most and um, the way is often made the most clear by understanding the attitudes and behaviors of our highest value customers. Right. And and I think that's such a brilliant uh, way of providing clarity in what is generally a very muddy field. I, I can't tell you how many times I have seen a company that paid a lot of money to have um, attendees of an event, for example, surveyed, and then they put all the survey results together, but you can't slice and dice it. You can't connect it to anything. It's all anonymous. It's almost useless because what people say who are your low value customers is dramatically different than what people say that are the high value customers. And it's not just in what they say, but it's what you alluded to a second ago in that they are the high value customers are really holding up your business. And if you have to do, if you had to choose between three things to do, doing what pleases the high value customers customers is generally the right way to go first. So being CLV driven or CLV led in your strategy seems to make the most sense out of the gate. Yeah, absolutely. That's certainly what we've seen. This ends the first part of my interview with Jordan Elkin at Constora. And I hope you'll join us for the second part of this fantastic interview next week. Thank you for joining today's show. This is your host, Allison Hartzell, and I have two gifts for you. First, I've written a guide for the customer-centric CMO, which contains some of the best ideas from this podcast, and you can receive it right now. Simply text Ambition Data, one word, to 31996. And after you get that white paper, you'll have the option for the second gift, which is to receive the signal. Once a month, I put together a list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are making amazing progress as they build customer equity. I hope you enjoy the CMO guide and the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.